In your Bibles this evening, congregation, we would encourage you to turn to Genesis chapter 9. We'll be reading verses 1 through 17 in your pew Bible. You can find this on page 9. After we read from the Word of God, we'll also be reading a section of the Belgic Confession, Article 36. In your Forms and Prayers book, you can find that on page 196. We read first then from the inspired, infallible, and inerrant Word of God as recorded this evening in Genesis 9, verse 1 through 17. So God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth. And the fear of you and the dread of you shall be on every beast of the earth, on every bird of the air, on all that move on the earth, and on all the fish of the sea. They are given into your hand. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. I have given you all things, even as the green herbs. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. Surely for your lifeblood I will demand a reckoning. From the hand of every beast I will require it, and from the hand of man. From the hand of every man's brother I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed, for in the image of God he made man. And as for you, be fruitful and multiply. Bring forth abundantly in the earth and multiply in it. Then God spoke to Noah and to his sons with him, saying, And as for me, behold, I establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle, and every beast of the earth with you, of all that go out of the ark, every beast of the earth. Thus I establish my covenant with you, never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant which I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for perpetual generations. I set my rainbow in the cloud, and it shall be for the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. It shall be when I bring a cloud over the earth that the rainbow shall be seen in the cloud. And I will remember my covenant which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. The waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh." The rainbow shall be in the cloud, and I will look on it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Thus far our reading this evening from the Word of God. We then turn to Article 36 in our Belgic Confession, and you'll notice that it is entitled The Civil Government. And it states as follows, We believe that because of the depravity of the human race, our good God has ordained kings, princes, and civil officers. He wants the world to be governed by laws and policies so that human lawlessness may be restrained and that everything may be conducted in good order among human beings. For that purpose, he has placed the sword in the hands of the government to punish evil people and protect the good. 
And being called in this manner to contribute to the advancement of a society that is pleasing to God, the civil rulers have the task, subject to God's law, of removing every obstacle to the preaching of the gospel and to every aspect of divine worship. They should do this while completely refraining from every tendency towards exercising absolute authority and while functioning in the sphere entrusted to them with the means belonging to them. They should do it in order that the Word of God may have free course, the kingdom of Jesus Christ may make progress, and every anti-Christian power may be resisted. Moreover, everyone, regardless of status, condition, or rank, must be subject to the government and pay taxes and hold its representatives in honor and respect and obey them in all things that are not in conflict with God's word, praying for them that the Lord may be willing to lead them in all their ways and that we may live a peaceful and quiet life in all piety and decency. And on this matter, we denounce the Anabaptist other anarchists, and in general, all those who want to reject the authorities and civil officers and to subvert justice by introducing common ownership of goods and corrupting the moral order that God has established among human beings. A congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, it has been said, and I believe rightly so, that you ought never mix politics and religion. And yet, that is exactly what, on one level, we attempt to do in Article 36 of our Belgic Confession. We attempt to mix politics and religion. But I said that I believe it is right not to mix politics and religion. I want to clarify that opening statement. And we ought not mix politics and religion with rash statements with knee-jerk reactions, with impulsive sentiments. But we ought to think and also to speak about politics and religion insofar as the Word of God speaks about politics and speaks about religion. And I believe that our Belgic Confession is most helpful it is a time-tested document. Yes, certainly it is composed with human authorship, but we believe that it faithfully summarizes the teachings of the Word of God. And the more things change, the more we find that really they stay the same. We can think about our own recent history, the past couple of years, the past couple of election cycles, and we can say that while politics have certainly been heated and tumultuous matters in our day, I'll grant you that, but if we were to be alive in 1561, and if we were to ask Guido de Bray, are political matters heated? In 1561, I'm quite confident he would have said, oh yes, politics is most heated. And we also find that there are certain voices within the Christian church who are implying that the church ought not have anything to say in regards to politics, or that the church ought not to address 
political dignitaries. Well, here again, with all due respect, uh, we beg to differ, and we take our cues from the Bible, and we ask ourselves simply, if the Bible has something to say about kings, about politicians, about politics, then the church has something to say about kings, about politicians, and about politics. Uh, And you'll notice when we read Article 36, as so many articles, it's full and it's overflowing with material that will be profitable for our study. Uh, And so what I have in mind is a few sermons uh, on Article 36, walking our way in a mature way, hopefully, in a thoughtful way, so that you and I first can be well-informed with a biblical biblical theology of politics, of the civil magistrate, of his or her role, that we then, having that mature understanding, might be able to profitably give an answer for the hope that we have to those who may ask, that we can interact as salt and light in our own community, in our own state, in our own nation. You'll notice that the Anabaptists are mentioned in Article 36, and they're not mentioned in a positive connection. You see, the Anabaptists were those who were characterized by either anarchy or just a complete world flight, a complete attempt to remove themselves from any interaction with the broader world. Brothers and sisters, we are not Anabaptists. Uh, we are called to seek the well-being of the city, the community, the state, the country in which our Lord God has placed us by His providence. We must be involved with our Christian knowledge and with our Christian beliefs in politics, but we must be involved in a proper way. And so may that motivate us as we begin considering this evening our belief concerning civil government. I want to look this evening at three points underneath that theme. First of all, looking at the necessary purpose of government. And then secondly, the divine institution of government. And then third, the limited role of government. And I I do attempt in all of my sermons to speak plainly, to speak simply. And I'm especially going to attempt to do that as we make our way through Article 36. I simply want to lay out not an elaborate system of political theory. The Bible does not lay out an elaborate system of political theory. The Bible gives us the basic principles uh, that address uh, uh, the political situation. And I want to do the same. Noticing, first of all, tonight, the necessary purpose of government. Already from the very beginning of human history, in Genesis 2, verse 26 and 28, and I would ask that, if you are so inclined, that you would look at these references, because these are so fundamental and foundational in our understanding of humanity, of the human race, of society. Genesis 2, verse 26 and 27 and 28, what is often known as uh, the cultural mandate, uh, you find uh, a certain exhortation. I I think I said Genesis 2, I meant Genesis 1. 
26. Then God said, this is an inter-Trinitarian conversation, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, let us make man in our image. Congregation, we must begin with this, this text in our understanding of what it means to be human, what it means to be a human being, what it means when we speak about humanity. God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit said, let us, God, the only infinite one, make man, make mankind in our image. And of course it continues, according to our likeness, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle. Notice already here <clears throat> there is a distinction between God as creator and humanity as created, but then even within the created realm there is a distinction between humanity and the rest of the creation. And there is a distinct place that is given to humanity a place of exercising dominion. And now when we make our way through tonight's sermon and the upcoming sermons, as all of our sermons, you will notice that there is a remarkable antithesis between what we believe the Scripture teaches and what you will find within our secular worldview that is so prevalent within Western culture. Many a voice... Uh, in the halls of higher learning, many a talking head upon a television program will try to present the idea that there's really nothing different between us and the rest of creation other than perhaps a few steps in the evolutionary process. But we must be grounded, and the instruction of our subsequent generations, our children and our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren, we must take them when they are still young and lead them into these types of passages and say, my son, my daughter, my grandson, my granddaughter, then God said, let us make man in our image. And God gave humanity dominion. That's why the master, the human, walks the dog on a leash. And the dog doesn't walk the master, the man or the woman on a leash. But who knows how long it is before a leash for a dog is forbidden by some expert and such things are outlawed. Because we have lost the moorings of biblical truth. And in this utmost simple text, we find the beginning of humanity. But now you know that Genesis 2 makes its way into Genesis 9. And in Genesis 9, we have what you might call a global reset on humanity. Not that things went off the rails, God's decrees are always perfectly realized and fulfilled. But you will remember, of course, uh, that humanity began to progress. But as it progressed, it also degressed. 
into sin until there came that point when violence covered the earth and the intentions of man's heart were only continually wicked. And God then intervened with a global flood. And yes, we believe such things on the authority of Scripture. We believe that God's patience was exhausted to the point that with the exception of eight souls, Noah and his family, the wrath of God fell upon the wickedness of the human race. And they perished in the floodwaters. And God reset humanity with Noah and with his sons and, of course, their wives. Now, if you leave momentarily the opening chapters of Genesis 2, Genesis 9, think Genesis 2, boys and girls, when you read Genesis 2, Genesis 3, there's two people on the earth. Now, I, I know there's, there's scientists with all types of degrees behind their names that will tell you about pre-hominid beings and all this other nonsense, and that's exactly what it is, nonsense. In the beginning, two human beings, Adam and Eve. After the global flood, eight human beings. But now, if you look at Revelation 7, verse 9, the two, or the eight, depending if you want to go with Genesis 2 or if you want to go with Genesis 9, in Revelation 7, verse 9, uh, a great change has taken place because there we read of a great multitude. After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could number of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes with palm branches in their hands. And that's what I mean by government is necessary for the progress of humanity. God could have, hypothetically speaking, God could have created ex nihilo out of nothing by the mere command of His authoritative voice an innumerable multitude of people in an instant. But He didn't. He began with one family unit. But the ultimate goal is an innumerable multitude gathered around the throne of the Lamb. And the way from the initial beginning of one family unit to the innumerable multitude is the course of human history, the progress of humanity. As humanity grows organically, through procreation, through multiplication, through the numerical growth that God has designed to take place in the moral, upright, beautiful context of a lifelong commitment of marriage between one man and one woman. This, this is how the human race flourishes. This is how humanity grows. There's no other way to, to grow the human race outside of procreation. And in order for the human race to grow, God then puts in place government because of the presence of sin. 
Because of the presence of sin, already you see it there so quickly. And of course, it originates uh, in the angelic realm with the fall of Satan. But already in the first family, Adam and Eve's sons, you find the presence of sin as Cain lashes out uh, in bitter hatred and kills his brother. And the earth begins to cry out, figuratively speaking, seeking vengeance for that which was unjust. And you find in Genesis 6, verse 5, uh, that this principle of wickedness also continued to develop. Uh, And what happens is that sin, humanly speaking, threatens the advancement of the progress of humanity because sin is death. And when you think, and if you step back, and with Scripture, if you analyze what is so prevalent in our culture, what is paraded as freedom of choice, etc., it's nothing other than an attempt to annihilate the progress of humanity by killing, by killing in the very nursery of the development and the progress and the growth of the human race. And these things are celebrated, and these things are defended. And sadly, far too often, the church, broadly speaking, is complacent, if not approving. And we must perhaps stand as a voice, a lone voice in the wilderness. But we must be clear that it is rampant evil. And why is it that so much sexual perversion is so rampant in our day? but a demonic attempt to attack the very place in which God designed the human race to flourish. The marriage, the family, the home, procreation. So is government necessary? Absolutely. We believe, now notice how Guido de Bray states this, we believe that because of the depravity of the human race. Now nearly everyone will tell you that the human race is good. And yet we come and we say, we believe that government is necessary because of the depravity of humanity. Well, if government is necessary, how did it originate? That brings us into our second point, the divine institution of government. Government is not merely, and I stress the word merely, government is not merely a result of social construct. It's not as if some antiquated cave dwellers got together and came up with some novel idea to establish a system of civil government. What we mean when we say divine institution is that God himself puts civil government and civil governors, and I don't refer to one particular office, what we call the office of governor, but persons in place. I have a variety of texts if you're taking notes or if you want to jot them down to prove that government is a divine institution. Perhaps the most well-known is Romans 13, verse 1. 
There Paul writes, let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Now much more can and will, Lord willing, be said about Romans 13, verse 1. And that text has been batted about quite frequently, especially in the past couple of years, even in Reformed Christian circles. But for our purposes tonight, my point simply is that Romans 13, verse 1, clearly points out that government is put in place by God. And that's supported by other Scripture passages. We think of Proverbs 8, verse 15 and 16. Uh, There the reference is to wisdom personified by the Lord Jesus Christ, by me, that is, by Christ King's reign, and rulers decree justice. By me, princes rule, and nobles, all the judges of the earth. Just notice there the comprehensive scope. All the judges of the earth. So it's not just some governments put in place by God, but all governments are underneath the authority of the one true God. John 19, verse 10 and 11, the interaction between Pilate and Jesus. Then Pilate said to Jesus, are you not speaking to me? Do you not know that I have power to crucify you and power to release you? Jesus answered, You could have no power at all against me unless it had been given you from above. And of course, then there is also the comprehensive statement in Matthew 28, verse 18. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. So all authority belongs to the triune God. The exercise of that authority is compressed upon the person of Jesus Christ as the mediator And he then further appoints governments and governing officials within those realms of government. And we believe this by faith in the Word of God. And we must bear witness to this. We must bear witness to this uh, in our own interactions within our communities. You see, we have a different, or at least we ought to have a different understanding about the very origination of civil government. And part of the reason why so few in our day understand the real origin of government is because the church uh, has been silenced by its own lack of courage or lack of clarity to proclaim to the world with not a bold arrogance, but with a humble confidence, we actually, we have a word to speak about civil government We understand the origination of civil government. And so it's high time for us to be more proactive. And there is something distinct, or at least there should be something very, very distinct in the education of a Christian community when it comes to civics, when it comes to government. And so whether it's in a a home setting or whether it's in a day school setting, There should be a black and white difference between the civics class and the government class in the Christian setting than in the secular setting. Because the secular setting, if anything, they'll tell you, well, civil government, just a social construct, just came about out of convenience, necessity. Uh, It's ultimately a result. It originates with the will of the people. The, The Christian community ought to say, no, 
God. God put government into position. This will have radical implications because now when we begin to ask ourselves what is the purpose of government, where do we then go? Not not to the government nor to the people, first and foremost, but to God Himself. If God designed civil government, would it not only be logical and right to ask God, for what purpose did you design government? And where do we find the answer? In our third point, according to Scripture, we find the answer in Scripture. And the role of government, we just simply want to state, is limited. And by that, we're not tipping our hat to one political party or another political party. We know that this is a a phrase, and we agree with it, used in political party campaigns. That's not my purpose here this evening. By limited role, I simply mean that God has put civil government in place with a very specific duty, task, function. That can be perhaps helpfully explained with both a negative and a positive. Given the depravity of humanity, given that men, male and female, are inherently sinful and inclined to all evil, and given that God's purpose was that the human race would organically, numerically grow and develop, God, you might say, knew that there had to be someone in place to punish the evildoer so that the human race could continue to grow and to develop and numerically increase. And so the first task of civil government is to punish the evildoer. Now already in that statement, you notice that we have to deal with the realities of moral value. Of moral value. There there are actions, thoughts, words that are righteous, and there are actions, thoughts, words that are unrighteous. This is all based upon the reality of God's holiness and righteousness. And this brings us already to the commandments of God, to the law of God. But in our postmodern context, don't fall prey to this nonsense that there's no moral value, that everything is just subjective. Hey, if you think it's good for you, it's good for you. If I think it's bad for me, it's bad for me. No, there is moral absolutes. And the ultimate moral absolute is God Himself. And God determines what is good and what is evil. And God punishes the evildoer for the evil. But to a certain extent, He uses the civil government. And that's why the Apostle Paul in Romans 13, verse 4, says that he is God's minister, God's servant. And in Romans 13, what does the civil government have in its hand? A sword. 
Uh, even the boys and the girls know that a sword, you use a sword to punish. To punish severely. I mean, this is just a silly analogy, but if you're trying to, you know, get your little pet dog to come in the house, you don't go grab a sword and say, Mom, I'm going go, to go round up Fido quick a minute with this sword. If you're sorting livestock, you don't, I mean, you might be inclined to after some frustration to, to get a sword, but you don't sort livestock with a sword. You don't separate the calves from the cows with a sword because a sword is an instrument of death. And that's why Genesis 9, verse 6 is so powerfully potent. Because humanity bears the image of God. If man's blood is shed by man, that man's blood also will be shed. And how is it that the Christian church, by and large, has become comfortable with the horrific practice of abortion. Abortion is just plain murder. The shedding of human blood. Oftentimes in a most brutal and grotesque form. And against the testimony of millions of silenced voices crying out for justice, Genesis 9, verse 6 echoes. You shed man's blood, by man your blood also will be shed. And so, by and large, the Christian church has to humbly but also confidently turn to the civil magistrate and say, in many, many, many ways and for many, many, many years, with all due respect, you civil magistrate, you have failed to punish the evildoer. And you can go on. How is it that grotesque homicides are not dealt with justly? How is it that the most Horrific crimes can be committed that we wouldn't even want to insult the innocent one's ears in this congregation by going into detail. And yet perhaps a few years behind bars and then the persons are released. Now I don't have all of the answers for politics. But how transformative would it be if we were to have a candidate for office who would stand and say, the first thing I promise to do is punish evildoers. Now you can already begin to do the analytic statistics and maybe the person would never have a chance of getting elected. I only bring the illustration up to point out 
how antithetical it is to the common promises of politicians. But this is the purpose to punish evildoers. But also then to protect the good. And these are not two completely disconnected purposes. Every good parent knows one of the most vital ways to protect your children is to keep them away from evil. And so the civil magistrate has the solemn obligation to protect its citizens by punishing the evildoer. So that then those who do good, those who do well, those who walk with at least external conformity to the commandments of God can go about their life with quietness and with peacefulness. And perhaps it sounds uh, a bit brash, but practically speaking, when, when thieves are put behind bars, then fathers can go out and can work diligently to bring home an income. And when murderers are executed, then children can play safely in the parks. When those who would abuse with predatorial evil the youngest members of our society, whether it be through the internet or whether it be in person, when such persons are dealt with firmly according to the principles of the Word of God, then our children will be able to enjoy life in a greater and fuller measure. But as long, as long as the civil magistrate pretends that all human beings are inherently good, and as long as the civil magistrate is hesitant to ever punish anyone for anything, well, then I'm sorry, but don't be surprised when the streets of the cities are not safe. When people find their only refuge locking themselves within their own homes, barricading themselves in isolation and loneliness. You know, and sometimes I wonder, and I hope it's not for bold or arrogant or selfish purposes, I sometimes wonder where the words that go forth from this pulpit end up. But if these words find the ears of anyone who is elected to a position of office in our communities. I plead with you for the sake of the God who appointed you, for the sake of the people whom you serve, punish the evildoer and protect those who do well so that humanity, according to the plan of God, can continue to numerically increase, and that there might be peace within our streets and in our cities, in our schools, and in our homes. We believe that because of the depravity of the human race, our good God has ordained kings, princes, and civil officers 
He wants the world to be governed by laws and policies so that human lawlessness may be restrained and everything may be conducted in good order among human beings. For that purpose, he has placed the sword in the hands of the government to punish evil people and protect the good so that we might live quiet and peaceable lives. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that your providential care continues to watch over our world. We do confess our own depravity apart from your redeeming grace. And so we are thankful for a Savior in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. But we are also thankful that the reign, the rule, the authority of that Savior extends over all realms, over all spheres, including civil authority. We thank you, Lord, that you have not left humanity over to itself, but that you continue to institute government and persons within those governmental roles. We simply ask that you would help us and them to understand their purpose as you have designed, and that we might be faithful in carrying out our callings. We ask then for your blessing to this end, for Jesus' sake. Amen.